Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is Why I Am Catholic, Part 7, with the subtitle of It Didn't Feel Like They Were Trying to Sell Me a Car. There's a novel by Graham Greene, a famous American author, called The Power and the Glory, which is set in Mexico during the communist persecution of the Catholic Church in the 20th century. And there's a great line in the book from an atheist who fully embraces his faith. Um, it's interesting, in hindsight of my own experience, to not believe in God takes every bit as much faith in the end as does believing in God, especially as your life gets longer. However, the outcome of how you see the world is radically different. The character in the book is an angry man who is hunting down the main character, the whiskey priest. The whiskey priest is the main character, and there's this uh, government official who is hunting him through the story. Um, the whiskey priest is a drunk, corrupt, unheroic hero who needs to be according to the government officials, snuffed out because snuffing out the priest will, according to the communists, kill off God. If they kill off the church, they can get rid of God for good. And this is another Herschel Walker trade, of course, which I'll, I've already discussed in other posts. But um, this is a kill em all approach, which has been the error of anti-Catholics since Nero first blamed the followers of Jesus for the fire in Rome. Um, it doesn't work, and it's it's also the name of uh, Kill 'Em All is also the name of a Metallica album. I don't think they had the same thing in mind, but anyway, an unbeliever writhes. This this government official and unbelievers, even in our world right now, they writhe at the stereotype of the faithful fool. Um, this government official loathes the idiot who prays and believes in angels and demons, and why is that? Well, because he knows better. He knows that religion is all smoke and mirrors, that it's all BS, and he knows it. He knows that he sees the wizard behind the curtain. That's the kind of thing. Um, now, these words co could have come from my mouth or mind, um, even though I wasn't physically hunting priests uh, down to kill them like they were actually were doing this in Mexico. Here's a quote from the book. It infuriated him to think that there were still people in the state who believed in a loving and merciful God. There are mystics who are said to have experienced God directly. He was a mystic too, and what he had experienced was vacancy, a complete certainty in the existence of a dying, cooling world of human beings who had evolved from animals for no purpose at all. He knew. End of quote. So yes, he knew and I knew, but I know now, too. And don't we all know? That is, after all, the point of the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. When we eat from that tree, we know, and we think we know better than God. We turn away from God. And Genesis is such a timeless old piece of writing, and strange and accurate. It's, it's amazing to me that this sacred writer knew how to craft this so elusively and accurately throughout all the ages that it would be relevant. But I, I, I always forget this. I forgot. Um, it's because God inspired the sacred author of Genesis. Um, there's some. There's a famous document from the church called De Verbum. Um, it expands on this idea, which is a worthy read for Catholics and anti-Catholics alike. Um, I also link to a couple other follow-ups of things. One's called Faith and Reason, and one's called The Splendor of Truth. Um, and if I'm going to throw all those out, you might as well read the prologue in part one of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, because they also go into this, um, this idea. But anyway, 
Um, what the atheist knows, knows in quotes, is not known any more than what the believer knows, but assumes a similar kind of faith. In other words, to quote the big Lebowski, you can say to the believer or the unbeliever, that's just like your opinion, man. But of course, one is right and one is wrong, but neither can ever prove it to the other. After adopting the ideas of unbelief myself for about 15 years or really being kind of fragmented and distracted, uh, I realized that I do not have enough faith to be an atheist, particularly after witnessing quite a few people in addiction recovery, literally seeing miracles that are like what happens in the Gospels and the power of prayer in real people's lives, including my own. The unbeliever's belief requires a kind of assent that is not all that different from the person of faith. Um, there's a famous book by John Henry Newman. Uh, the topic is The Grammar of Ascent. And then G.K. Chesterton also wrote a book uh, or several books. And you can expand on this idea of assenting to things and how we come to agreement. They're really fascinating books. Um, we are assenting to a faith, like it or not, whichever way we lean. And the reason endless debates rage over the existence of God is because both sides can say they know, and they know they are right, and they know their arguments defend their view. But the only problem is that only one can actually be right, and only one will be proven correct. And the test date is usually unscheduled. It's kind of a pop quiz that happens with the final beat of your heart, or the last breath you draw in this world. That's where we will know who is right and who is wrong. And that's that's the bet, I suppose you could say. This makes for a lot of anger between tribes of believers and unbelievers because both know they are right. However, the unbelievers should never be mocked by believers because that is their job, to mock us believers. They get to keep that for themselves. They don't have much else to hold on to, so mockery and condescension remains theirs, and it should remain theirs. To be mocked for having faith in God should not bother any person of faith, because really, faith is a gift. And if you've ever been to a party where everyone received a gift except for you, the feeling results in sadness or anger, uh, but the wound of being left out leads to envy, and then you get sour grapes um, you can see what happens for people who don't have faith. It's, it's sour grapes. I didn't want it anyway. Um, insults on people of faith's intelligence, uh, lots of accusations of inbreeding for some reason, and then variations on the phrase of, I don't need a crutch. That's just some of the way envy or anger really comes out of it. The error of envy plays out in toddlers and adults in interesting ways. You'll notice that Jesus never exhibits any behaviors related to envy. Believers, as always, should imitate him and pray for strength daily. All adversity should be received as exercises in humility. It's like reps for Jesus, if you want to call it that. And for every insult for faith, we should give thanks to God for the opportunity to be, to be tested and to grow in faith. The meaning of life is wrapped up with faith in God. It fills the big empty. And those without faith cannot grasp this. It's impossible. If I try to explain that I believe in miracles to someone who calls himself an atheist, the wall around them is built up so tall that they cannot even hear a word I'm saying, and I had the same wall. The atheist will often say, I just need more evidence, meaning a sign. 
which is interesting because the parable of the rich man and Lazarus covers that exact thing. But even if Jesus flew around in the sky in front of them, they would start explaining the physics and asking for a video to review if he was wearing a jetpack. There's not a sign that will will do it for you. And that's the thing in the Bible, in the Gospels. People always want a sign. They want another sign. And it doesn't matter how many signs there are. If you don't believe, you will you will find a reason not to. In fact, I had this very conversation about miracles recently with someone who doesn't believe. And we spoke about the calming the storm miracle when Jesus is in the boat and he just calms the storm with like uh, by lifting his hand or blinking his eye or something. And his answer to me was that, well, science can do that. It can control the weather now. Um, But I have yet to see a meteorologist reach out his hand and stop the wind and the waves instantly. But I didn't bother to ask, what about walking on water? Because I already realized we weren't going to get anywhere. But surely he would have had a material cause, like there was a reef beneath Jesus's feet or a first century paddleboard that he was using. Uh, My point is that you must take a leap of faith on miracles in order to believe. You won't even understand the Gospels if you don't believe in miracles. You can't. And that's why I always find it odd that there's so many um, atheist academics who study the Gospel, because if you don't believe in miracles, I don't even know why you'd read it. I really don't. Uh, Other than the good thing is that they're seeking and perhaps all of their knowledge will lead them to believe. But um, for anyone who doesn't believe in God, the devil, or miracles, I don't know what you're going to get out of any of the Bible. So it's always interesting that people spend so much time reading it when they don't believe any of those things. I think it's actually, there's like a, they want to, but they want to tear it down, but they're still curious. Anyway, the alternative to belief in miracles and things is to find material reasons for divine things or to deny the stories ever happened altogether. And many modern modern uh, unbelievers have done, they've gone all the way in trying to solve this problem, and they just deny that Jesus ever existed, uh, which even though we have more historical evidence for him than probably for Julius Caesar. Uh, The problem with that is, like the ostrich, God still exists even while the head is underground. The walling in of our wonder is what keeps us from opening up, from filling, really, the God-shaped hole in our hearts. Okay, now after lots of bashing, like I said, I'm trying not to brass bash Protestants or evangelicals, this is where I'm going to start praising them. So I'm going to praise them now. Uh, Many believers of non-Catholic faith traditions are enriched and filled with the Holy Spirit, and many understand the faith part better than Catholics. I'm talking about evangelicals and Protestants. Now here is where I even praise faith alone a little bit. The great thing about faith alone is that people meet, they come to Jesus this way without having to assent to the whole catechism of the Catholic Church or go through an RCIA class for six months and then be baptized on each Easter vigil. Um, You know, Luther's doctrine of faith alone lowered the barrier of entry, and Jesus certainly criticized the Pharisees for keeping the kingdom of God from ordinary people. And Catholics can trend toward Pharisaism, Phariseeism, I guess. Uh, And this is a well-known charge against the Church. Rules and regulations are needed, and they must be adhered to, otherwise the whole thing falls apart, which you can see happening in the thousand denominations of the Protestant world, um, because the doctrines are just getting mauled like by bears. After all, I mean, Jesus said he didn't come to throw out the law, but to fulfill it. 
And he also said that we must do more than just pray and say, Lord, Lord. And basically um, he's saying there are things that must be done. There are works like be baptized and believe. And if you love me, keep my commandments and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So there's things to do. There are things to be done. But um, so anyway, while I don't believe that the ease of entry into salvation is true with the sola fide or faith alone argument, that idea, it certainly gets people into the door. The ball gets rolling very quickly when someone is ready to change. So if someone is drawn to Jesus through a concert style service or an altar call famous in like the Baptist world, there are far worse things I can think of people doing. I just don't think that it's the fullness of the faith. I believe that there is more to it and that the tradition that goes back to Peter is the church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that is guided by the Holy Spirit. The simple invite of, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, has always seemed too easy to me. But I have seen it change lives in dramatic and stunning ways when someone takes it to heart. Even yesterday, I met two evangelicals and their lives are changed. There's no question about it. They are changed in a stunning way um, when they they found the Lord. Um, And you can tell that it's not coerced or faked. I know evangelicals and Lutherans and others who are on fire for God. And even though they say works are not necessary, these on-fire believers are engaged in mucho works, both body and soul, helping people pray and get along in this world. And that is a beautiful thing. The, the, The problem is that it leads to the pink cloud too often. And what is the pink cloud? Addicts who get sober can experience a pink cloud after about 30 days of sobriety. And everything is wonderful. Life is amazing. Love is everywhere. And then the euphoria wears off. It's like a knife edge. It gets worn down real fast. Many relapse because this new high of sobriety has dulled. And the new feeling of being reborn in sobriety fades as real life plods along with the march of days, the onslaught of the hours and minutes and days Thus, our newly sober people warned, beware of the pink cloud. In a similar way, the euphoria of an altar call or instant conversion lacks long-term staying power because it's too easy. Having attended a few services in my life where sinners feel moved to come up to the altar um, in the army and a few other places um, when I was was in uh, other non-Catholic churches, I watched with skepticism as it felt too dramatic too emotional, as feelings do not always last. And this is why watching uh, Marcus Grody's uh, Journey Home conversion stories is so compelling. On that show, there are five or 10-year or 20-year conversion stories. And I link to Dr. David Anders and uh, Scott Hahn is another story. There's meat and potatoes in these stories of life, learning, hard knocks, and revelations. And recently, a celebrity... Shia LaBeouf, who's in some movies, um, I don't know, he's, he was doing an interview <clears throat> after he converted to Catholicism, he was going to play the role of Padre Pio, Padre Pio, and he said that it didn't feel like they were trying to sell me a car. That's what he's talking about, saying the monks, when he was working with them in, in the movie, didn't, it didn't feel like they were trying to sell me a car. He converts on his own. He's not forced. He's not coerced. That saying, it didn't feel like they were trying to sell me a car, 
nails it. He nails the problem of cheap and easy evangelization. And I'm not putting down evangelization. I'm just saying, I'm talking about this feeling of being sold. When it's too glossy, too polished, too impersonal, too much sugar, it doesn't feel right. And let me give some examples of this problem of feeling, quote, sold instead of assenting to church teaching through a process of both reason and faith as Chesterton and St. Augustine's conversion stories did. So I can recall several attempts by people to evangelize me to Christianity while I was fallen away that repulsed me and pushed me further away from God than if they had scourged me with a whip. Uh, it was the cell. It was the approach. It was the pitch. I think I think of these often now that I've returned to believe in Jesus because they make me realize how obnoxious it is to sell religion to someone like it was soap or a gadget, like a phone. Here's example number one. And these will say more about me than the people who are trying to convert me in most cases uh, because I was so turned off of faith and religion. Example number one, I was on a beach during spring break drinking heavily, just like any good useless college student raised on Nirvana and Sublime, when a few attractive college girls approached. They wanted to hang out, but then within a short time they asked if I had accepted Jesus as my personal savior, and I said no, and returned to the comfort of liquor and moved on. That was the end of that. Uh, example number two, I had paid $50 to do an ejector seat ride where bungee cords will shoot you into the air for like three seconds of bliss and, and excitement. And right before we were about to eject, the operator said, I can only hit this button if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And rather than say, no, let me off, I said yes, because I had paid $50 and didn't want to get off the ride. But it irritated me and ruined the experience because at that time I was still happy uh, living on the side of the devil. So example number three. I recall retreat groups coming uh, to church once or twice as a kid with super motivated adults and teens who wanted to stir up the spirit in us, but I didn't get it. I also didn't get it when some kids would apparently feel the spirit and start crying and want to give their life to Christ. The retreats just kind of hit me like a pie in the face. and I just wasn't ready to eat. The thing was, the people were trying hard and probably did convert some people, but I just couldn't buy in. In fact, the people... Um, on the beach, probably converted some people, but I just couldn't do it. It didn't feel right. I wasn't ready. I don't know. Um, example number four, I attended an all-night party as a kid, thinking it would it would be bowling and basketball and movies, but then it turned out to be a Christian rock concert with um, a long altar call where the singer just needed 10 more of you to come up on stage and give your lives to Christ, and it was a long, long period. It felt like and all the hand-waving and tears around me didn't faze me uh, as I eyed the pizza from the open side doors. Um, I wanted to move on to the pizza and bowling and basketball and movies. But And number five, the last example, there are probably a few others I could think of, but I remember Jehovah's Witness coming on to the door and running an elevator pitch at me while I was hungover and watching football. I uh, probably had Taco Bell or was playing cards or who knows what, but it reminded me of when I had to sell candy bars for a local booster club as a kid, and I hated it then, selling the candy bars, um, or soap, I had to sell soap, uh, that's a long story, and I knew the candy bar buyers hated forking over a dollar for the subpar milk chocolate, and likewise, I cringed watching these people try to sell this this religion to me 
when I was not in the market. I also knew just enough about Jehovah's Witness theology to realize that it would be betraying my reason altogether to engage with them. So I said goodbye. Um, now, with all that said, with all that said, I can tell you this. Every single one of those people who tried to convert me had a lot better grip on life than I did, since drinking was my escape and my idol. So if it sounds like I'm mocking those people, I'm, I'm not, honestly. They were much more organized and, uh, and had it together better than I did. So um, drinking and goals, achievement was the game for me. I thought that was, that was what it was all about. And despite having a decent sense of biblical stories, I had zero idea what they meant or why anyone was pushing these old, old tales my way. Um, all I saw was a bunch of rules. Um, I felt like Cool Hand Luke when he said, uh, I ain't heard that much worth listening to. There's a lot of guys laying down a lot of rules and regulations. Um, and I'm pretty sure I wanted actually to be Cool Hand Luke, come to think of it, because he was cool. He really was. At the start of this series, I talked about selling because that is what people do with their worldviews. What's so strange, what's so strange about the Catholic Church is that it does not feel like a sale because much of what they teach runs against our desires and instincts. What an awkward pitch that is. It's almost an anti-sales pitch, which is why we have to wrestle with it for so long. And just as con Jesus confounded us and refuted our expectations of what the Messiah would do, so does the church often. But for those who end up buying Catholicism, it's eventually purchased because it works. It is proven to work. People arrive at this place because nothing else has worked. Peter famously said to Jesus, Master, where else will we go? This was after Jesus. Um, people actually left Jesus after he did his bread of life discourse, and they were leaving, and Jesus said to the apostles, will you leave me as well? And Peter, Peter famously said, Master, well, where else will we go? This is one of my favorite quotes in the Bible, because Peter's already arrived. He's, he knows. What else am I going to do now that I've met you, now that I know who you are? There's nowhere else I want to go. There's nowhere else I would ever go. The Catholic Church is the last stop after all other sources of truth have been tried and found untrue. This has been the conclusion of people in every generation for 2,000 years. We may not like the pitch or the demonstration, but the application of it works. It offers sanity in a world of half-truths. It requires elevating faith ever so slightly over reason, but just barely. The beauty of Catholicism is that you get to keep your reason, all of it, and add onto it the mysteries of faith. It enriches reason because it tears down the wall of needing material answers for every single thing. It throws out religious fundamentalism while keeping the laws of physics, the commandments, miracles, and the richest trove of literature and stunning architecture and stories the world has ever known. Also, it's not forced upon anyone. It doesn't feel like trickery. How, how could it? The pitch takes away things that we perceive to be pleasure, so the gloss is off the flyer. The pitch is not easy. It's not a quick solvent, or it's not a pill to swallow. It's more of a tough love. It's like a stern but loving family that sits you down to say, this will be difficult, but you can be holy. First, grow up and take responsibility, and second, be humble and return to the faith of a child. Now, start praying and serving others. 
what bothers me about saying I, I accept Jesus as my personal Savior and then being done with, the, with salvation, being done with any progress, is that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. All right, that's the end of this episode. I'll be back with a few more uh, in this series, and I hope you keep listening. Thank you.